Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Before we get into the preaching, a couple things I'd make you aware of. I didn't say it before, but I'll put it out here as a prayer request. Um, this morning, I drove up to visit our missionary, Don and Beverly Six, who have come off the field from Sweden back to pastor their church in Middletown, Ohio. It is aptly named. It is between Cincinnati and Dayton, right on Interstate 75. It is the middle town uh, in between them. And so I got up there this morning about 8.30, had breakfast with Don. Um, I will simply say this because this is recorded. I'm going to go up there and preach for him on March 17th uh, to just try and encourage the church family. Um, know this, don't ever follow men that follow doctrines that aren't in the Bible. Um, it was not a depressing day, but it was very much a day as a pastor of despair. It, it, is, um, it felt kind of like one of those Dickens novels where the, the character gets to see into the future as to what could and might be if we don't actually keep walking with the Lord. I walked through a 130,000 square foot crypt today. A church that has been there for 79 years, planted in 1945. Uh, one that Don was born into and was saved at and called to preach in and went off to the ministry. And there's been four pastors in the church's history before him. And uh, I'll simply say this, all of them except the last guy were great for the church ministry. I think at its heyday it was just south of 3,000 members. Uh, they still have a Christian school that has about 750 uh, in it. Uh, and uh, the church family now as a population because of people following different, what I would say are probably not ill-intentioned leaders within the New Testament church movement, but they are agenda-driven. Whenever you get off on man's agenda and you get off of God's simple agenda of preaching the gospel and doing what is right, Things can go south very quickly, and the last pastor that left, or was asked to leave, last year in the springtime took about 450 of the church members with him, uh, and they had already declined from their near 2,800 level at their peak in the early 2000s down to a church of about 1,500, then to 1,200, then to about 800, then to about 700, uh, and then 400 left, and Don is pastoring and shepherding now, trying to restore and rebuild uh, a church of about 175. They're smaller than us. And uh, he said, I appreciate you because of the way in which your church operates, but more importantly, and I love this, this was the best thing I heard at breakfast, he said, more importantly because the people have a love for each other. And I said, well, I'm glad that you've picked that up when you've been here. I said, because to me, I think that's the secret sauce to building a church is to build the people in their fellowship with God and with one another. Uh, that is absolutely essential. Uh, the church first, we have to do good to the household of faith. That does not mean that we are inward focused only. But you always have to care and concern for the health of the church. So um, it was, it's been a, not a long day, but I was there. I got back, Jessica died this afternoon, and she said, are you going to go into the office? I said, I think I need to go lift weights because I'm kind of mad. <laughs> Uh, I mean, pastors aren't supposed to get mad, right? But, but I looked at it and I thought, uh, I walked, their, their entire, their, our entire building would fit in their auditorium. 
Um, and uh, just pray for them. Grace Baptist Church of Middletown, good church, good people, but they've got a lot, uh, Don's got a lot on him to, to say. There was literally points today as I was talking with him that internally I was praying, and I will continue to pray. It might have just been easier to stay in Sweden. Now, he feels this is God's calling, and he feels like there needs to be someone there that's able to preach the gospel and rebuild the church because he does believe it's needed in their community, and I don't disagree with that. But think of what I just said. To go to hardened Europe where hardly anybody will listen to the gospel, it actually might have been easier to stay there because of so many messes. Uh, and so instead of coming home and going, man, I'm glad I pastor here and I don't have any problems, right? I came home and my heart was heavy for a brother who is trying to do what's right, and he's going to literally have to, he's got some good people. I got to meet a couple of them today in passing, and Jessica and I are going to go up on the 17th, and we'll look forward to, I don't even know what I preach, I, hopefully a very encouraging message, one that's positive, and you can do this. If we can start with two, and God blesses it, I, you can start with 122, and I'm sure God will bless it. You just got to stay faithful at the task of what the Bible calls you to. So pray for them. And then another note before we get into the preaching, next week Edward will be preaching. Jessica and I will be gone to Florida. It's our annual trip to go see my pastor, Bud Calvert. Uh, it's his annual trip where all of the guys that have gone out of the church that he pastored years ago come back together. Uh, we don't know how many more years we'll get to do this. And on the other hand, we don't know how many more years we have to do this. Uh, but we look at it as a get to. My dad didn't, I don't want my dad mad at me. We get to do it, but uh, it is a disruption to the schedule of life. And so we, the boys will stay here with mom and dad. We'll be back. Uh, we will only miss the Wednesday, but Edward will cover for me next week. And so I'm very glad for that. Well, before we get into chapter 7, let me ask this question. Because once I start reading, we'll pray and we'll jump into it. I sent you no questions today. In fact, I sent you a note that said there are no questions today. But I do have a question for you tonight. If you read Romans 7, who would dare give a less than 30 second summary as to what Romans 7 is about? The floor is yours. What is Romans 7 about? The battle of the flesh, okay. Good. What else? Somebody. Edward. Edward is like sheepishly waving. Have conviction, brother. The crisis of self-awareness. Ah, the crisis of self-awareness. It seems like you might have written a book with that as a title or a sermon, right? Good. Of course, that is accurate. When you read Romans 7, or as you're now feverishly reading Romans 7, what do you think it's about? I mean, if we're coming together and doing Bible study, I see that at the sound booth. Go ahead, Melanie. Freedom from the law, Freedom from the law she says in Romans 7. Really? Yeah. How are we free from the law? May I ask a rejoinder question? We're now under grace. That's right, we're under grace. We're dead to the law. Good. That's a good answer. All right. How many know the most famous verse in Romans chapter 7? Anybody want to guess? Gretchen wants to, but she's like, I'm not sure. She has her hand over her mouth, like, I'm not sure. Now I've thoroughly embarrassed her. Sorry, Josh. I can't believe you wretched people don't know the most famous verse in Romans 7. Yeah, I think it's 724 or 25, I think, isn't it? 24. Oh, wretched man that I am, who, who 
shall deliver me from the, from the body of this death? Uh, who indeed will rescue you? Who indeed will save you? We'll look at that this, this evening. Any other thoughts? I, I actually put on there the uh, nervous question of a pastor. What questions do you have from Romans 7? Notice how I was very specific not just ask pastor time. We do have things that we want to cover as a part of our teaching on Wednesday night. We try to be in, in the mode of supplication. But were there any questions as you read Romans 7? Or were there any comments or any, any thoughts that you'd like to have? Or anything you would like me to answer on the service? You say, I'll wait till we're pre- done preaching and then I'll ask you in person. Is there any question for the, the group at large? Good. We have a shy and bashful church. That's wonderful. I'm kidding. All right, let's get into the reading then this evening. We'll get into the actual study here in Romans 7. We're going to read the first six verses, then we'll jump in uh, and we'll pray together. The Bible says, Know ye not, brethren, here's a parenthesis, so he's making a clarifier, for I speak to them that know the law. So what does that mean? Let's pause for a second. What does that mean? That's right, that's right, Brother Rick. He's speaking to the Jews. And so what he's saying is there's probably people in the church at Rome that are not going to understand a lot of the perplexing, questioning, cross-examining, self-examining questions that are going to come in Romans 7. But he's going to state them because they're absolutely essential for those who are coming out of a religious background into a right relationship with God. And that's what chapter 7 is going to really help us understand in this warfare that we have. He says, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit, or production, unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit or the product unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Father, help us this evening as we come to the Word of God, as we come and as we settle ourselves upon it. I pray that you would help us to see truth in it. And more than anything, Lord, I hope as we go away tonight, we will understand the true battle that we are in, the warfare. We are freed by your grace. We are dead to sin and our flesh and our nature in Jesus Christ. And the penalty that the law brings. Far too often, many of us find ourselves right where Paul was at the end of the chapter, saying, oh, wretched me, who's going to save me from this? And the only pathway to progressing in our sanctification is Jesus Christ. He alone can save us literally from ourselves. Bless us, I pray in this hour, in Jesus' name, amen. 
We move from the warrior being explained to us in Romans 6 to the warfare that is exposed to us in Romans chapter 7. I believe there are three men or three types of people that are described for us in Romans 7. And John Phillips in his commentary does a far better job than I could ever come up with. And so I'm going to read directly from his commentary about these three types of people. He says, first, there is the natural man. The natural man is the unsaved man who can rise no higher than his intellectual, moral, or volitional powers can actually lift him. He is ruled only by his senses. The second man he introduces is the carnal man. The carnal man is say is a saved man, but still dominated at least partially by the power of sin and under the control of his old nature. The third man that we find is the spiritual man. The spiritual man is the believer whose life is wholly controlled by the Holy Spirit. So from this, we understand then from chapter 6 that we are instruments of warfare to righteousness or unrighteousness now. That is our understanding as a warrior, but now in chapter 7, we're stepping onto the battlefield. Now we are entering, if you will, the arena. What is it actually like to fight? I'll never forget when I was a little kid, I went over to the Hood family. My mom and dad would laugh at that. Micah Hood had a birthday party, and we went over to their house for a birthday party. And all of us kids in the third, fourth, and fifth grade would do this on the playground. <laughs> do a little boxing. Well, you know what the hoods had? They had boxing gloves. And as soon as we went down to the basement after the pizza and the soda was given to us, we put on the boxing gloves and we began to box each other. Do you know what happened to me the first time somebody hit me? I dropped like a rock. It was a cold November or December night, and they took me out front of their townhouse and sat me on the stairs so I could get some cold air to wake me up. I stepped into an arena, and I got knocked right on my keister because I wasn't ready for it. Oh, boy, those hood boys, my dad will attest to this, they were rough. They were a roughneck group. Man, he hit me, and I think there was some bent-up anger in the fact that he hit me because it wasn't like duking and dancing around. The shadow boxing days were over, man. It was the early days of the MMA. He just whopped me real good, and down I went. I even, after I got my senses back as a sixth grader, asked, what is in that glove? Just my hand. <laughs> okay. Romans 7 is the Christian walking into the battlefield. A lot of times we get punched right in the nose and we don't know how to handle it. And we don't know what to do and we think, well, I'm just a failure, so I can't be a really good Christian. Romans 7 is a chapter on sanctification put in the middle before we see what winning looks like so that we might understand what happens when we taste defeat. What warfare actually is like. Romans 7, to be sure is one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible because we find the great Apostle Paul languishing just like you and I. And we think, well, how could this guy, if this is really how he thinks or who he is, how could this guy actually write so many books in the New Testament? And the answer is, you can do the same exploits as the Apostle Paul if you will just get the same heart he had. If you'll just pursue God in the same way he did. Oh, yes, with failures, with faults, warts and all, you can still serve God and rejoice in it. Romans 7 
is often not studied by young Christians because they come away confused. Sometimes it's even avoided by those of us who are mature Christians as well because it's just too many back and forths, Pastor. Paul addresses the two extremes of Christian living here in Romans 7. On the one hand, there are those that claim we are under grace and grace alone. Thus, we have license to do anything we please. On the other hand, there are the legalists who claim, yes, I'm saved by grace, but to please God, I must live under His law. The sanctified life is not to be lived in either license or legalism. It is instead to be lived in love for the one who first loved us. That's what Paul's going to drive us to by the time we get to chapter, end of chapter 7. In fact, I believe this is the theme, or the, the theme of this chapter, I should say, is at the heart of Paul and in his mind when he writes his final epistle to Timothy and tells Timothy this in 2 Timothy 2, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou, also to, uh, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Excuse me. I got my also out of place. Thou therefore endure hardness as what? A good soldier. Well, let's pause in the reading of this for just a second. In chapter 6, I noted that the sanctified life is one of a prepared warrior. If I'm going to be progressing in sanctification, then I'm going to have to be engaged as a warrior in the warfare. And this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. You have to endure hardness as a good soldier because no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who, please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for the masters, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. In this one passage, he opens with grace, but finishes with the fact that the law still has some impact on us. So which is it? And the answer is, we are saved by grace, and we live according to the law of Christ, which is always going to meet or exceed the law given to Moses. Paul exposes the warfare first, then with first in our outlines, the consideration of our obedience. In these first six verses, what he wants us to do is to start thinking as we enter the arena. That guy has a great left hook. Make sure your hands are up when the left arm moves. In other words, you've got some considerations that you have to make when you enter that space. Those that have ever worked in law enforcement will tell you that doors and corners are the important thing of clearing out a house. Why? Because as they enter a danger zone, they have to know what is most important. The consideration of our obedience, then, is given to us. Paul wants us here to consider that the law given up on Mount Sinai died in the body of Jesus Christ in, in verse number 4. By that, it is meant that the penalty of that law died. The punitive effect. It was placed upon Jesus Christ. The law defines the gulf or the barrier that exists between the natural man and a holy God. That's why the law was given. So that we might understand, not that we fall short, but just how far we fall short. This is how Paul chooses to introduce us to obedience. 
It is a plainly stated fact of consideration by Paul here. If God's law has been met by Jesus Christ, then we can meet God through Jesus Christ. For our consideration, then, our obedience is first formed in a new union, he tells us. When you first come to reading Romans 7, if you've never read it before, you start reading it and you think, wait, he's talking about marriage? How does this apply to my sanctified life other than I should dwell with my wife according to knowledge, right? But how does this help me? And the answer is he's not talking about the marriage relationship. He's using the marriage relationship and the covenant and the bond and the law agreement on marriage as a picture, as a type. He says, listen, we have to stop and think. We've entered into a new union, a new relationship. Wherefore, he says, my brethren, ye also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God, he tells us. You will recall that Paul said as much in preparing the warrior. Back in chapter 6 and verse 6, he said, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. As believers, we are not bound to the law. We are bound to Christ's life. It is in the bundle of his life that we are bound up. We are tied to. We are married to. We are to be living with the motivation and the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. The very way he lived is how we ought to conduct ourselves and live. You know what Jesus did not do as he walked around this earth? Man, I wonder if I'm breaking one of the laws. He knew he wasn't. One, because he knew the law. It helps if you write the law. But two, and two, because he's God. But, but I think practically for us, We as Christians, if we live our lives through Christ, or maybe we could say it more accurately, Christ living through us, we understand then that there is a truth to this union. As believers, we're not bound to that law anymore. This isn't gospel-centered, nor is it grace-centered. It's essentially God-centered. There are so many movements today, as I even noted from my time spent in Ohio today, that believers, good believers, become confused because they follow a set of creeds or doctrines. You know what those creeds and doctrines do? They just replace the law. Well, I I really like this following. I, I really like this particular school of theology. Do you know the school of theology that I like? It's right here. And I promise you, there's not a single person in this room tonight that's too stupid to pick this book up, read it, and be able to understand it. You're smart enough, I promise you. And the problem is we have become so pablum-based Christians that we just want somebody else to force-feed us. We want milk all the time instead of meat that is right here in front of us. Paul's admonition as we step onto the battlefield, into the arena, is remember who you are married to spiritually. Remember who you represent. Remember what side you're on is essentially what he's saying. Who you are unified to is no longer to the law. It is to the living Lord Jesus himself. The second thing that we are to consider in our own obedience 
meaning why do we obey? I don't obey anymore because I legally have to. I obey because I can. It is found in a new understanding. In the flesh, he says in verses 5 and 6, we produce death. That's pretty basic to those spiritually aware. What should also be very basic is that we have been delivered from the law. We might say delivered from the penalty and punishment given by violating the law. By removing us from the law principle, God has removed all of the fears that would come with it from the failure to live up to it. By removing us from being underneath it, I don't have to say, I can't do it. I can say, he did it. The letter of the law should no longer be a daunting thing, and it certainly should no longer be a discouraging thing. Isn't that how most Christians live? Well, I'm just not good enough, Pastor. Listen, if you've been saved in Jesus Christ, you're good enough. That's essentially what Romans 7 is saying. Now, we're going to see that that good enough is the starting point, and then you can go from good to great. But you don't have to have the law hanging over your head anymore telling you how terrible you are. You already know you're terrible, but you know that Jesus Christ was perfect, sinless, and died for you. It is not the law, of course, that has been put to death as he is speaking in verses 5 and 6, but rather the believer that is put to death in Jesus Christ's death. We die with Jesus. Instead of seeking an outward conformity, then Paul says at the end of verse number 6, one of the greatest statements in all the Bible is at the end of verse 6. He says that we should serve in the newness of spirit or in the newness of the way we think. The spirit is talking about our faculty to reason. How are you reasoning through what you're doing? Is it because, well, I know I'm going to get in trouble if I do this. That's the wrong way. That's under the law. I know that it pleases God, so I want to do this. That's the newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Instead of seeking an outward conformity to the letter or the external rules, we might say, of conduct that the law prescribes for us, the believer, indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, fulfills the spirit of the law. The Christian life does not then consist in mere conformity. I look right. I talk right. I act right. And all of those things should be true. But it's not because somebody gave me a list that says do this. It is the very life and loveliness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, being worked out in us by the Spirit of God as to why we do those things. The word that is so significant is found in verse number 6. We should want to serve. It is the word should. He says that we should serve. It's an act of the will. It's a desire from what we understand, and and the understanding bends towards who we are united with. This is the consideration Paul wants to put before us. Paul first wants us to consider why we obey. Then he moves secondly in our notes to the confront, moves us to the confrontation with our old self, and that's verses seven through fourteen. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? I mean, was it wrong for God to give us the law then? Is the law itself wrong? Of course not. God forbid, he says. Nay, I I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. 
But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. That word is an old English word. It just means all sorts of unfiltered desires, uncontrolled passions. It just kept compounding. Pastor, I never thought I'd get to that point. And many times if someone says that in counseling, I will say, I would imagine you would get to that point because the Bible tells us that when we start engaging in sin, we don't really know how to shut the valve off. It's all manner of concupiscence. He goes on, for without the law, sin was dead. Now, what he's saying in that, he's not saying that, that uh, when there was no law, there was no sin. What he's saying is we didn't know. It wasn't, we weren't quickened, made alive to the fact that there was sin. He goes on in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived. That word revived literally means it was resurrected. It was made very obvious. It became alive. You think about the old story of, uh, that is told of, of uh, what's the big monster that has the bolts in his neck? Frankenstein, right? When the lightning bolt hits, what's the doctor say? It's alive, right? That's exactly what you can see in this. When the law comes and we realize, oh, now I've coveted, it's alive. Think in your mind of the young man that came to Jesus and said, I've kept all of them from my youth. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, go sell all that you have. And the Bible says he went away very sorrowful. Why? Because the law just came alive to him. And he thought, oh, man. And he walked away like all of us do when we come to the law and we realize we're sinners. He goes on in verse 10, The commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment. In other words, it literally grabbed us by the arm and put that arm behind us and put us in a lock. We could not get out. Taking occasion deceived me and by that very law and commandment it killed me, slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy. The commandment or the things that it tells us to do are holy, just, and good. In other words, by nature, it is like God. The law itself is holy like God. But all the things that it tells us to do, the word commandment is different. Law is spirit. It's in our mind. Commandment is the action that we take. He said the actions themselves are also holy. They're just and they're good. They're benevolent to those that we do them to. Was then that which was good made death unto me? No, again, God forbid. But sin, that it might be obvious or appear to be sin, working death. The word death here can just mean separation. Working separation in me by that which is good, by the law itself. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. The confirmation of our old self is found in the heart of this in verse number 10. It shows confrontation in its very nature. The law was ordained to life, it says, but Paul, in verse 10, found it to be death. God meant it for good, but as it comes into our lives, it teaches us we're bad. Every person who considers God's law realizes they cannot live up to its expectations. So we find a truth about this confrontational matter with the remaining old man that will not be removed from us until we reach heaven. It is woven through verses 7 through 14. In fact, the reference point for Paul in this section seems to be in the past. All of the verbs in this section of Romans 7 are all in the past tense in the Greek. 
In other words, what Paul is talking about here is, this is how I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I recognized what it was doing. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew the law, and God's revelation to him was, the law's what's killing you because you're a sinner. Just as an aside, since these verbs are all in the past tense, Many people that get saved older in life are usually, and I'm going to be very careful how I say this, are very much in love with Jesus Christ because they recognize, they can clearly see how many dead things they used to do. Do you know why it's hard for generational churches to truly exist? It's because the kids that are raised back in our teaching classes right now, the kids that are raised in good Christian homes, and we have some good Christian homes here, Sometimes it's harder for them, and I are one of them, for us to look back and say, wow, I can imagine Jesus saved me from a life of drugs. Well, it didn't happen to me. And what Paul is addressing here is the more you recognize what you've been saved from, the easier it is to just freely love him. And the great problem often for many people that have grown up their whole life long in church is, I know I'm saved from a lot, but you know, I didn't do that much. Guess what? You're just as lost as the next person. Now, through life and time, we come to understand the depth of that. But that's just a free preaching on the side. Paul confesses here in verse number 14 his own confrontation. We know that the law is spiritual, he says in verse 14, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Literally, I'm stuck under it. He frames in the confrontation first that God's law is spiritual in your outlines. God's law is spiritual. In verse number 7, he tells us as much. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No. Look, it's good because I would not have known what sin was actually defined as. But by the law, I would have no definition. But because the law came, I have a definition of what is now classified as spiritual and natural. I know. That's the good of it. We find again in verse number 12, he says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. So God's law is spiritual, but let her be, our flesh is sinful. This is the right cross when we were planning on a left hook, right? This is the quick jab right in the nose. And we thought, oh, I planned for every other thing, but here comes my flesh. And that's what our flesh does. That's why we have to mortify the deeds of the flesh, because it's just one blow after another. It never lets up. It will never stop. The word death, as I noted, means spiritual death. That is separation. So what happens when we sin? We die. The grace of God will not allow our relationship to die, but our fellowship with God surely dies each time we sin. Paul in verses 8 through 11, and then again in verse number 13, shows the sinfulness of our flesh as it acts against the spiritual goodness of God's standard. In verse 8, he tells us that our sinfulness found opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to sin. Every desire, every concupiscence was heightened because there was now something that told my free will no. And every time it's told no, it says yes. 
That's why the only commandment that was given to Adam and Eve was what? Don't eat. And yet they ate. It's the concupiscence built within the free will of man. In verse 9, Paul felt, Paul felt no guilt, no separation from God when he was unaware of the law. Before the law came, there was freedom from an accusing conscience. Remember back in chapter 2, we talked about the moral conscience of man. God has built it into us. We know that something's wrong, but without the law, we don't know what is wrong. We just know that I think that's wrong, and you might deem it okay, but there's other things you deem wrong that I deem okay. But it's only through the law that we have an objective agreement on what is right and what is wrong. After the law, there is a knowledge of how far short we come. We are dead, and we know it. Sin kills us, he says. In verses 10 and 11, we find that sin does kill us, even though the law was ordained to provide for us or provide a pathway for us to life. But none of us can do it. God's initial law was don't eat, and you won't die. If you do eat, you will die. In fact, he even had the word surely. It's a guarantee, man. In verse number 13, we find it's pretty simple. There is nothing wrong with God's law. Instead, there is everything wrong with us. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's why chapter 7 is so perplexing, because we actually want to start reading it and say, well, there must be some kind of uh, problem or tension between God and the law and us. And the answer is no, the tension's always just in you. God is very clear. Just love me. You'll be able to keep my law. You know, if Adam and Eve had just loved God and his word in the garden, they would have not ever had a problem with don't eat that one fruit. Don't eat from that one tree. But they didn't love God more than they loved their freedom to choose. By the way, let this be another side lesson. Pro-choice is always a problem. (laughs) He's given us the free will. And I would say this, be pro-choice only towards God. Choose Him. Choose life, as Moses said. So, friends, when we find ourselves running afoul of God's law, it is because sin, that which is bad, is working death or separation in us. Our sin nature wants to pull everything about us away from God. It is going to work, and it is going to work, and it's going to work, and it's never going to stop working you over. By the way, it is not the normal function of the law to congratulate, the, congratulate excuse me, the law-abiding citizen. I've never been pulled over in all of my life for the many tickets I got, well, before I was a pastor, don't worry, but when I got those tickets, they never said to me on other days, did a police officer pull me over and say, Kyle, I just want to tell you, this is a school zone, and it's 25 here, and you were driving 25. Would you mind coming down to the courthouse with me so the judge can tell you, good job, you're only doing 25. The law is not designed to congratulate the law keeper. The law is designed to punish the law breaker. And that's what Paul is addressing here. It's why we chafe against it. It's why we have such a problem with it. This is the confrontation. We who have trusted Christ are not voided of the presence of sin in our mortal bodies as we wish it was. So long as we inhabit this physical realm, we must confront the wanton sin nature that rests within each of us. The consideration of our obedience opens us to the confrontation with our old self, which leads us, finally, number three, to the contest that is ongoing. 
That's verses 15 through 25. And this is where the chapter really gets back and forth, right? Where Paul says, the things I do, I don't allow, and the things that I allow, I don't want to do. Well, let's parse the words very carefully here as we understand it. He says in verse 15, for that which I do, I allow not. Anybody want to venture a statement on what that means? Come on, we're running short on time. You're now keeping yourself here longer. Yeah! That's, I mean, it's very simple, very good, Keith. It's just something simple, right? I'm doing them, but I don't want to. And you say, well, that's a lie. You do want to because you're doing them. And what he begins to explain to us is the actual core of the contest. Have you ever gotten up one day after sinning and said, Ah, why did I do that? And the answer is, all of us have. Every single person that's ever sinned after the salvation has done that. By the way, if you've never done that after your salvation, and you're saying to me you've never sinned, one, you're a liar, welcome to your sin. Or two, if you've never felt the guilt or the, Ah, why did I do that? Then perhaps you've not ever been saved. This is a mark of sanctified living. This chapter is not put in to the chapters that are dealing with salvation. This is dealing with sanctification, personal growth, the progress of the believer after their salvation. He is saying then, he goes on to say, For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not... In other words, in my natural man, I don't want to do this, but I'm choosing to follow God and choosing to do this. He says, I consent unto the law that it is good. I'm choosing to do right. That's what Paul is addressing here. It's what he's trying to teach us. He goes on and says in verse 17, Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Okay, well, now what's he talking about? When I fail, is he begging off of his responsibility here? Is he trying to remove himself from responsibility here? No, he's just noting the reason for his doing it, the reality. Sometimes you just have to look in the mirror and see what reality is. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, that is in my natural man, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. How to perform that which is good? I find not. I don't know how to do it in myself. That's the benefit of the law. It teaches me how to do what is good. Not so I can keep the thing that's on the list, but because I can love the God who made the list. I can express my love in a right way. For the good that, w- for the good that I would do not, but, excuse me, let me get my words right. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then, here's his conclusion. I find then a law that when I would do good, I'm I'm waking up today and say, Jesus, I'm on your side and I'm going to do good. He says, evil is present with me. Where did it come from? It's been there the whole time. You got to mortify your flesh. You have to die daily, he would tell the Corinthians. Verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God after what? The inward man. But (laughs) I see another law in my members, warring. Here's where I get the word warfare for this chapter. Warring against the law 
of my mind. You, you could literally say then there is a war going on between the law of my mind that I know is right before God and that does the things of God and the law of my members, that is my natural flesh, my passions, my lust, all the things that make up that word concupiscence. He goes on. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God. He's asking a rhetorical question, and he quickly adds his rejoinder. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one that's going to save me from this body of death. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Two quick points and we're done this evening, I promise. The contest that is ongoing then revolves around two questions. A, do I live in carnality or Christ-likeness? When we're talking about the arena that we're stepping into, we have to have the consideration, we're going to have the confrontation, but the contest is really over these two questions. The first being... Am I going to live in my carnality? You cannot live wholly in your natural man anymore. The book of Hebrews tells us that if you are a son of his, he will chasten you and he will scourge you. So you cannot live wholly as a natural man. You can live looking like a natural man, but you can't go back into damnation. The word carnal is not used to describe an unsaved person, but a Christian who who though saved is still in bondage to the power of his flesh. If that's you, then take on Christ's likeness. And we're going to find all of that as the winner is introduced in chapter number 8. You know, it's interesting in verse 24. He says, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? I thought I would give this very grotesque story to you at the end. Do you know how many Roman soldiers would kill murderers? And we would say, well, it's on the Roman cross. Well, actually what they would do is that they would take the person or the corpse that had been murdered, and it was proven that this person murdered them, they would take them and put them face to face with the corpse, bind their arms, bind their waist, bind their feet, bind their necks, and so that while that rotting corpse out in the desert was bound to this person alive, the necrotic nature of death would start decaying the live person, the murderer, and he would die. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Who's going to liberate me from this body of death? Friends, you are walking around with a corpse strapped to you. It's your natural man. And it is gross to think about dying that way. But may I submit to you in your spiritual walk, that's how most of us die every day. We're just, we just let that thing hang on to us. Who's going to save me from that? Jesus. He's alive and walking around. Don't hang on to that old dead body anymore. It's a terrifying thought. It's it's horrifying to think about, but that's exactly how they would do it. And thinking in that arid culture, in that arid climate, in, in that kind of area, I can't imagine the grotesque way to die. But if you were a known murderer, it was certainly worthy of the punishment. Maybe a bit excessive. Well, letter B, it's not just do I live in carnality, or Christ-likeness, do I live in faith or frustration? Can you not sense the frustration of Paul? I mean, the Apostle Paul, right? I I don't know if we'll call him that in heaven, right? We'll walk up, you're the Apostle Paul, I I don't know. 
But that guy is frustrated over his sinfulness. By the way, you and I should be frustrated over our own sinfulness. But we don't have to live in that frustration. We can live and walk by faith. And that's what chapter 8 is going to introduce to us. Warren Wiersbe said this, and I thought it was a good conclusion, a good thought to conclude with this evening. He said, the reason the believer cannot make himself holy, excuse me, holy by means of law is not because God's law is not holy and good, but because our nature is so sinful that it cannot be changed or controlled by law. It is a wonderful day in the life of the Christian when he or she discovers that the old nature knows no law and the new nature needs no law. What? What? Right, because I'm walking in the Spirit. It is a, it is a high day indeed in the life of a believer when they realize, you know, I don't need a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts because they are living so, I would say, superior to that mere list because they're walking filled with the Spirit day by day. The war is real. And the warrior must be engaged as we close our thoughts tonight. There are no pacifists in the spiritual fight. There are winners and there are losers in this sanctified life. The next time we gather in two weeks and we look at Romans 8, we will look at what winning looks like. And I will tell you right now, I have no earthly idea how I will finish by 8 or 8.15 or 12.15 to cover all that's in Romans chapter 8 next time. But we'll try. Thank you for putting up or being patient with me this evening. Father, help us.